This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a look at the Airbus International Anti-Corruption Settlement. James Kukios details what are the three key takeaways that he would advise a company on at this point. We look at the SFO first conviction for withholding documents requested in a bribery conviction. And we consider Isabel Dos Santos, Sonegal, and Angola. What does it mean for companies who have done business there? All on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with fan favorite James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forster, for another look at a great firm, International Anti-Corruption uh, Newsletter or Client Alert. Uh, this is the firm's Client Alert for January 20. So, James, uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, James, the... Um, Month of January in the FCPA and greater anti-bribery, anti-corruption world world worldwide was dominated by one case, and that, of course, was Airbus. It was the largest uh, anti-corruption settlement in the history of the world ever. It involved uh, the Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom, the PNF in France, and, of course, the Department of Justice uh, here in the United States. Um, myself and others have explored it at, at some depth. But you had some uh, interesting and, I thought, unique points uh, on this case that maybe we could explore a little bit. The first one I wanted to ask you about is uh, FCPA jurisdiction. Did you see anything uh, that you, you you, you would utilize to really counsel clients that any contact with the United States, however slight, could lead to FCPA jurisdiction and, indeed, a massive fine and penalty? Yes. Tom, for sure. Um, so this is, a, as you mentioned, uh, and as DOJ mentioned in its press release, the largest global foreign bribery resolution in history. Um, there are many different countries involved. The U.S. part of it focused on um, sales of aircraft to Chinese um, aviation authorities and state-owned airlines. And it's interesting, there's a large section about the use of third-party consultants to funnel bribes to um, to Chinese officials. That's pretty common. Obviously, third parties are the most significant risk area when it comes to FCPA. Those allegations sound like a lot of other cases using consultants to funnel allegedly funnel bribes to Chinese officials. It's interesting, though, that it doesn't appear, at least it doesn't leap off the the page to me that many or, or if any of the transactions involving the consultant uh, had a U.S. jurisdiction, um, there was money being paid to Hong Kong bank accounts, to Chinese authorities, 
uh, and uh, presumably the money started in France or somewhere else like that. So it doesn't seem like the the consultants actually had a um, had a jurisdictional hook to the United States. What it appears to be is that part of the alleged bribery scheme was that Airbus would invite Chinese officials uh, for all expense paid trips to the United States uh, in furtherance of allegedly in furtherance of the bribery scheme. That's also actually a pretty common fact pattern that we've seen on a lot of different um, resolutions as well. I remember one that I worked on way back in the day, UT Starcom. Uh, that was the central allegation that uh, Chinese telecom agencies would, would give contracts to UT Starcom if they um, agreed to bring Chinese officials to quote-unquote training uh, in the United States, which was allegedly actually just Disney World and the Grand Canyon and things like that. So the fact pattern is not that different, but it seems like um, this massive uh, bri- uh, penalty, um, it was over $2 billion worldwide, um, I think more than that. Um, but even the U.S. part was over $500 million when all the credits were said and done. And it appears to have been, the jurisdiction appears to have been based on a handful of all expense paid trips to the United States. Um, so it, I think the, the lesson to be learned is that the FCPA is not limitless in terms of its jurisdiction, but it's broad. And if you're taking any activities in the United States in further into the bribery scheme, DOJ is going to assert that jurisdiction and it could lead to massive penalties in the United States. And I think on that note, um, Tom, I just think it's, I want to quote part of the relevant considerations paragraphs from the deferred prosecution agreement itself, where DOJ said, and I'll quote, the territorial jurisdiction over their corrupt conduct is limited. So DOJ, I think itself acknowledged the fact that there was a fairly thin thread um, tying this conduct to the United States, but it was sufficient to create a territorial anti-bribery charge and, uh, and an over $500 million fine in the United States. You know, James, I think that's a great point. Uh, most of the training I put on is inside the United States, but occasionally when I go outside the United States, I really emphasize that point. The prior case I talked about was the Total case, which had a $400 million fine, uh, and the jurisdiction uh, linked to the U.S. was $500,000 of a bribe was wired through the U.S. banking system, but that was out of a total of 61 million paid in bribes uh, by Total for the rights to gas fields in Iran, uh, back when you could do business with Iran. Um, so that, you know, once jurisdiction attaches, it attaches for all purposes. And that's something that I think uh, many foreign-based corporations really don't have a full appreciation of. That's right. I think that's that's a great point. So, James, this uh, I talked about a little bit about the international cooperation, and certainly we've seen cooperation between the United States and the Serious Fraud Office. I think you've talked several times about the cooperation you saw when uh, you were with the department. But here we had a new player uh, and a major uh, come on board in a major way, uh, the PNF in France. Um, I'm not quite sure if if that's equivalent to the Department of Justice, but at least it was the prosecutorial service in this case. What did you see or what intrigued you around um, the cooperation uh, between the Serious Fraud Office and the PNF on one hand, and then the United States wrapping it in with both? 
Well, it's a major development. I think we may have talked about this on an earlier um, podcast as well, that France seems to have entered into the foreign bribery enforcement game in a way that it, it never had before. If, if you look at the sort of top 10 biggest um, FCPA resolutions of all time, you'll see many of them, I, I think about half of them involve French companies. And part of the reason for that was the French did not um, enforce their foreign bribery statute in a way that the U.S. agreed with. And so talking about jurisdiction a moment ago, the U.S., if it had jurisdiction over a French company, would bring that case and often result in very large penalties as a result. France didn't like that, as you may imagine. Um, you know, why? I think the idea was why should French companies be paying money to the U.S. Treasury? If the U.S. is going to keep doing this, we need to get involved ourselves. Um, and they've started to do that. So in, in many ways, the U.S. position in that regard was justified. Uh, France, we're going to we're going to make you get involved in this and enforce your laws because we're going to keep bringing fines against your com uh, your companies until you do. So France has you know recently passed a, a deferred prosecution agreement type law, makes it easier to resolve these cases. That was one impediment in France in fairness to them, that they they weren't set up for efficient corporate resolutions like the United States is. Um, so France is now a major player uh, in this. And I think Airbus is, is just another example um, showing that France is going to be a major part of uh, foreign anti-bribery enforcement going forward, uh, especially where a French company is involved. I think it was very interesting as well. Um, for many, many years, um, DOJ has talked about the fact that when there are multi-jurisdictional um, in, uh, investigations, uh, DOJ will often defer parts of the investigation to our law enforcement partners um, if uh, DOJ feels that they are pursuing them in good faith, that there's going to be meaningful sanctions and whatnot. And actually, in the body of this um, resolution, DOJ says that parts of the investigation were deferred to the SFO uh, because the SFO's uh, UK's interests were more implicated than the US. Uh, and it also says that um, obviously money will be credited um, against the fine for the penalties paid to the French and to the UK. And it also said that um, they considered the interest uh, and dispositions in France and the UK as relevant considerations for how DOJ should resolve it as well. So I think a uh, long way of saying, Tom, is France is now a major player in the in the scene. UK has been, as you mentioned, for quite a while. And we're, I think we're going to see more instances of the US, the UK, and France and other countries working together on these big multinational investigations. And if this is any indication, this is the largest foreign bribery resolution in history, it means it could be large dollar figures. Now, of course, this is aircraft, this is defense, so the, the products involved and services involved are necessarily going to be large numbers, which drives the, the guidelines. But it really does show what can happen when major economies get together to enforce foreign bribery. Uh, James, the French blocking statute seemed to be a part of this case, and I was wondering if that's something you ever had to deal with, and if you did, could you just uh, spend a few minutes explaining to our audience what that is? Yeah, the French blocking statute is is pretty, um, uh, what's the word for it, severe. It really does make it very difficult for um, companies in France to be able to um, produce documents to DOJ. 
there's been a lot of companies though over the years who who are are now used to this and they've found ways that they're able to get data to the United States and elsewhere. Uh, for example, through the MLAT process in ways that respect uh, the data privacy and data blocking statutes in France and still allow companies to be able to cooperate with the United States. And James, there was also not only international cooperation, but internal cooperation in the Department of Justice. We had a, a large ITAR component in addition to the FCPA. Could you spend a little bit of minutes, a few minutes rather, uh, walking us through that? Sure. Yeah, that's a very interesting part of it. Obviously, we have here, uh, and what we're talking about because of the focus of our, our show today, um, the FCPA part, but that's right. There's a large ITAR component to this resolution as well. And at the risk of oversimplification, the allegations here are that, for example, um, Airbus, even though it's assembling its uh, aircraft uh, outside of the United States, was getting parts from the United States and those parts were subject to U.S. Uh, export control laws. Uh, and the allegations are that Airbus did not appropriately uh, account for those export control laws when they were uh, selling their aircraft. Uh, I think it's very interesting. Uh, it's not the first time that we've seen in, uh, cooperation between uh, the National Security Division and the Criminal Division at DOJ uh, in these cases. Obviously, when you're a defense contractor, uh, you're going to be not only at FCPA risk, but you're going to be at export control risk as well. Um, so it's not unusual to see when, when the company is involved in the uh, defense industry or, or potentially oil or gas or things like that, um, that they may have export issues as well as anti-bribery issues. Uh, and I think, again, this shows that you know not only is there cooperation between countries, but there's cooperation within the department as well um, between the National Security Division and the Criminal Division. Um, both are based in D.C. The front offices of both are, are at the RFK building. Uh, people get to know each other. They start to work on these cases together. And importantly, I think for companies, they, they're coordinating these things as well. So there's one coordinated resolution. There's one bad press day. Um, there's one document. Um, but it does show that the, the two, um, divisions are working together. And that's a force multiplier for the department. Uh, they can share information. They can, uh, in appropriate circumstances, they can, you know, work together on these things and, and make a, a more significant resolution than either one might on itself. It's also interesting, the uh, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office was involved in this as well, and that's pretty commonplace when you have export-type violations. Many of those are brought in the District of the District of Columbia. Uh, and so, again, another internal DOJ partner here that's pretty common in these type of cases. James, the uh, our next couple of stories are around the uh, Serious Fraud Office. Uh, the first one was the Serious Fraud Office won its first conviction for withholding documents requested in a bribery investigation. And probably, you know, from a procedural point of view, is fairly fascinating. But does this really help the SFO and, and put a uh, the fist inside that velvet glove? I think it does. So this is, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting story because of who was involved. So just as a background, uh, at the end of January, uh, a trial concluded in the UK and the UK judge found that, um, I don't know how to say her name, Anna Makevich. I think I'll, I'll say that. 
uh, found her guilty of failing to fully comply with a document request by the serious fraud office under Section 2 of the Criminal Justice Act in connection with the SFO's bribery investigation into Eurasian Natural Resources Company, which is a Kazakh mining company co-founded by Ms. Makevich's father. So she wasn't actually the target of the investigation. Her father was, and the SFO used these new powers, which sound to me, and this is not technical, but it sounds very much like a grand jury subpoena type of power to try to get documents from her that might be uh, helpful in the investigation of her father's company. Um, so she apparently resisted that. Um, and so the SFO went to court to try to enforce that criminally. And she was, in fact, the first person to be convicted for failing to comply with one of these Section 2 notices, which, again, sounds to me like a grand jury subpoena type of a compulsory uh, document production process. So the, the fine was relatively light. It was 800 pounds, um, plus apparently in the UK, which I, I, I didn't know about, but it's always fascinating, you also have to pay the SFO's legal costs, which added another 181 pounds. So just under 1,000 pounds in total for this. Now, I don't know how much, you know, is a thousand pounds really going to make a dent? Is that really going to do anything? But the fact that the SFO was willing to go to court for this and actually had its rights vindicated, uh, you can imagine that this could send a message for, for companies and other individuals that they need to cooperate in SFO investigations if they get a Section 2 notice. James, the other story... Um that you guys highlighted was the Serious Fraud Office released guidance on evaluating corporate compliance programs. And although I found the uh, information didn't break any new grounds and really didn't go uh, in any greater depth than what we've seen from the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission back as far as the, the 2012 FCPA resource guide, I was struck that the SFO actually released information because David Green was so antithetical to that, uh, you know, banding names around that we were not the serious champagne office. We weren't going to tell you how to do this. It was up to you. And obviously we had a change in leadership, but this would seem to be maybe a change in attitude even from the SFO. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I agree with you. It doesn't seem to break entirely new ground. For example, um, the guidance refers back to the six principles from the Ministry of Justice's guidance on the UK Bribery Act, which was actually published in March of 2011. So it kind of referred back to a document that was about um, almost nine years old. Uh, it also, though, it appears to be more of an internal guidance that was then um, released to the public, made, made public, which is kind of how DOJ does some of their recent um, guidance as well. You know, some of it is is captioned as guidance for DOJ prosecutors on how to evaluate compliance programs and things like that. But by making it available to the public is, of course, a message to the public as well. So I agree with you. It is, it is interesting. It may show a change in the um, attitude of the new leadership of the SFO on, on openness and transparency and some of its internal guidance. Um, but I think I agree with you as well that there's not a whole lot in there that adds much to the discussion. Now, of course, if you're a company or a person who's uh, in front of the SFO and you have a matter in front of them, 
this is obviously a document you need to to know about and to use for your arguments about why a certain um, uh, compliance program was effective and why you should get a certain disposition as opposed to another. So it's important, obviously, for practitioners to know about this. But in terms of breaking new ground, I agree with you. It doesn't it doesn't break tremendous new ground. And James, on our last story, we've had a continuing series of stories about a regime change and indeed democratically elected regime change leading to um, the new guys uh, investigating the old guys. And we had that again in Angola. And uh, here we we had a, a um, individual, the former daughter of the um, pro, uh, prime minister, Isabel dos Santos, uh, has had allegations of corruption brought against her. And I guess the we now see this theme continuing that uh, individuals or companies that did business with a a regime, legitimate governing regime, are now perhaps under stress because of their prior business dealings. Do, do companies do really need to start thinking about uh, scrubbing their operations literally uh, on a worldwide basis? Yeah, I think if you are a company that did business with um, what's been identified as a Dos Santos business, it's probably a good idea to at least do a prophylactic look at your business activities. Obviously, it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. Um, I, I, many, many legitimate business transactions um, took place here. Um, but it, it, to the extent that you did do business with a Dos Santos company, it probably makes sense just to take a look and make sure that if any law enforcement agency comes knocking, you'll have a good response to it. And if, and if it turns out that something was wrong, to try to get ahead of the curve. I mean, I think the other interesting thing here is, uh, and just for context, um, um, Isabel Dos Santos was the daughter of the country's former president, as you mentioned. Um, she was also former chairwoman of Sonegal, which is Angola's national oil company. And it's been, as, you know, over the years, the focus of many FCPA alleg- type allegations. Um, uh, and so, uh, one other very interesting thing here that we've seen, for example, in Panama Papers and other anti-corruption issues is uh, there was also a WikiLeaks um, type of leak as well. Um, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists got access to um, uh, apparently about 700,000 documents related to Ms. Dos Santos' business. They're calling it the Luanda leaks. And again, um, if your company is mentioned in one of those documents, it makes it just makes good business sense to at least make a prophylactic um, look to see, you know, was there anything um, that law enforcement authorities could question if they came across your company's name? Uh, and do you have a good defense um, just in case there's anything that, you know, that they do come knocking, you can explain this business, why it was legitimate, how you'd already lo- looked into it. So long story short, this is one of those um, potentially international investigations getting a lot of attention from the media, and it just makes prudent sense to take a look at your operations. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but we're going to link to the firm's uh, client alert in the show notes. I wanted to thank you again. I look forward to visiting with you about the firm's uh, February uh, anti-corruption client alert. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join me again next week where we take up another topic on the FCPA Compliance Report. If you haven't done so, please check out my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus, where I bring clarity and sanity to the compliance practitioner during this health crisis. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.